welcome to my dad's podcast. My blackest fan is national. Follow him on Instagram. Hope you enjoy the show. listening to my black is transnational my name is dr kalechi bay lamberts and i'd like to thank you all for for joining us today for this episode and for listening if this is your first time listening to my black is transnational uh, please feel free to subscribe or download the podcast on your favorite podcast listening app um, you can also make sure to rate and review and subscribe uh, the podcast and share it with a friend who you may think is interested uh, today we'll be talking about a couple of things. Uh, I will be doing this episode solo, so it's just you and me. Uh, I do want to apologize for not having another episode for you all last week. As I had mentioned on my social media account, by the way, you can follow me, Black Transnational underscore, on Instagram. And you can also join me on Twitter, MBI Transnational. Um, that's the Twitter username that I'm that I have right now. You can also email us at blacktransnational17 at gmail.com so just throwing that out the way those are my formalities but anyway today's episode will be kind of two-phased but also still be under the same concept of transnationalism to some degree i'm kind of doing this episode um with a little bit of a heavy heart because of recent or i should say current events uh, depending on whenever you listen to this show uh based on the death of rapper um real estate mogul and uh, just community activist Nipsey Hussle, um, who was maybe not necessarily known too much for his music, but also known for his activities and what he did in California, but also for what he did for his country, which most people may may not know, um, his country in Africa of Eritrea, Eritrea, forgive me if I'm saying it wrong, but I think that's how it's said. Um, so yes, so we'll be talking about that, but we'll also be talking about hometown associations because we still have to keep to the concept of transnationalism or at least use this opportunity to talk about that. And last week I wanted to talk about the concept of a well-behaved woman and I was going to have a special table talk with some guests to come in and talk about their experiences as far as what their culture has done to to keep them abound or what is done to influence how they've constructed their identity as women. But unfortunately, we were not able to do that to wrap up history, Women's History Month, but we'll be able to push that forward and still hold that conversation in the near future. So please look out for that. And I, I really appreciate some of the some of the listeners who have sent their thoughts uh, about their experiences. And I will make sure to read that on the show with your permission already shared and given to me. So, all right. Hometown associations. So when we think about the concept of transnationalisms and, and, and immigrants and, and in the black community, what are hometown associations and what happens? So I'll paint a picture like this. When an immigrant arrives in the United States, you're looking for a space where people who look like you, who, people who are from the same spaces or from the same area or region that you were originally from, you're trying to figure out where they're at. 
right? It's kind of like when you, as an African-American or as a black person, when you go to somewhere that may be a new city, you're most likely looking for what are black people at? Like, what are, what, what, what are people, what are black people at? When you go to a college campus, you might be looking for what are black folks at? Where are the people at who are from the culture, who I can relate to, who I can understand, um, who I can vibe with, who can kind of show me where to go, tell me how to go about doing things, kind of tell me what the, the lay of the land is. And that's essentially what a hometown association is from a, from a, in a grander scheme when we, when we talk about immigration. So hometown associations, are there. some people call them hometown societies, some people call them ethnic-based organizations, but these are alliances that are created by people or immigrants who are from the same city or from the same region of origin where they come together in the United States and they begin to help each other. They aid each other. They help each other as far as adjusting, resettling, but they also help them sustain their ties collectively to their native homeland and be able to continue to keep the culture alive or continue to even help keep the culture growing because you want to be able to pass on that culture to the next generation, to the second generation, and to, and to the third generation and be able to find ways to keep that identity and that... Um, that pride and all the things that make you who you are, all the things that you want to sustain from your native homeland, it helps keep those practices alive and strong and and vivid. So these hometown associations are, I guess, a way to kind of paint an example, just using using past past conversations that we've had. So let's say we're all from Chicago or we're all from... New York, and we all move to Brazil, and living in Brazil, we're going to probably be there for 20 years, and we're living in Brazil, and what we do is we find people who are from New York, or find people from Chicago, we're not necessarily just looking for Americans, but we're looking for people who are specifically from these areas, and what you do is you try to find people who you, you do things that are very similar to what you all did back in your native land. So things that you used to do in New York, you probably watch, you know, the same sport teams. You probably engage in festivities and celebrate and recognize holidays and Independence Days and things that are specific to that area in which you're from. Even though you're in a completely different land. You're still doing things that you, your family, your offsprings, and, and, and friends are that are nostalgic to where you're from, to be able to keep that alive. And that's what a lot of immigrants and transnationals do in order to retain their identity and resist acculturating fully to that new land. So it's a very powerful tool because you are, this is normally the these organizations sometimes serve as the gatekeepers and facilitators to help these incoming immigrants and transnationals or budding transnationals. It keeps them grounded, but it also helps them understand how to get where they need to go and navigate the new system because most of the time you may have members in these hometown associations which that are, I should say, that are, that are veterans and have been here for an extended period of time and can kind of show you the ropes. And a lot of times they don't just always come in these alliances. Some of them come in organizations that may be even more specific. So good example when it comes to the black or the African immigrant community, specifically West Africa, I'll speak for my country, Nigeria, is that you'll see there there are a lot of Nigerian associations, Nigerians that focus strictly on the 
overarching the the country itself as Nigerian association. Then you sometimes have even more subcultural hometown associations that would focus strictly on Lagos. You have the Lagosians, right? So these are people strictly from Lagos who grew up in Lagos and are now in America, and they have ways to connect. Then you may have one that is my, that might be more ethnic specific, such as the Igbo Alliance. Right? And these are for people who are from the Igbo land and people that may be from the Yoruba, um, Kwara, Ondo State um, Association. And then you may even have for people who are from Ghana, right? People who may be Ashanti or people who may, you know, and, and those types of people connect with each other on a deeper level than just being from Ghana or from Nigeria. So there are even deeper levels. It's multifaceted in the way these hometown associations function. Um, another way that these things can also be presented are in the form of religious, uh, faith-based institutions. Right. So sometimes you see that there are mosques and churches who have various chapters globally. Right. For people who are from West Africa, you know about deeper life churches and redeemed churches, and these redeemed churches are everywhere in the United States. And these are places where, or even the Seven Day Adventists, and they may have their own particular chapters. And these are places where people from these um, common communities can come together and congregate, not just on a mutual, we're from the same area, but even on a spiritual level. And what these hometown associations do outside of just helping people navigate is they also do things such as collect, you know, fundraise and collect resources to send back to the native homeland. So sometimes a lot of these churches, um, Nigerian-based churches, will do things and, and they'll bring people from the native homeland, bring pastors, bring members from their particular community to come to the U.S. and give speeches or keep them informed of what's going on back home and vice versa. And sometimes you will have things where they'll fundraise and they'll take trips back to the motherland to be able to give goods, to give products, to give money, to be able to make sure that things are, do, are going well back home. So it's a way for them to also share remittances. And again, for those who don't know what remittances are. Remittances are the distribution of goods and, and, and products and services across borders. Right? These are the giving of money and gifts and, and tools from one country to the other. So sometimes as a collective, these hometown associations allow you to be able to, to, to come together and keep things in those common regions that you all are from to be able to make sure that you're still involved in these affairs and you're actually contributing to these affairs consistently. Another aspect is what I kind of alluded to in the beginning, which is the sustaining of certain cultures, not just for yourself, but also for the kids. So I know some some of the listeners of this show are second generation, or they would identify themselves as first generation American, but your parents are first generation immigrants, therefore you're second generation immigrant. So I always allude or at least address or identify you as a second generation immigrant. So in that case, second-generation immigrants, you've grown up in most cases with family members being part of some type of Nigerian um, association or some type of or, or, or some type of church that may have some Nigerians or a multitude of Africans, and you find yourself in summer times probably going to some type of picnic, some type of um, festival, some type of Nigerian type of party. But you notice that in these spaces, you're doing things that are very reminiscent of the homeland. You don't party like any other party in the United States. You're not listening to to always soul music or having a club scene type of thing that may 
maybe of a different type of culture, but you're doing things that are very similar to what would happen in Nigeria. You're listening to African music. You're eating African food. You're even attending these events on African time. You're coming late and doing the same things that you would do back in your home country, and your parents are keeping that energy and keeping those practices alive, and you get to witness that, and you find yourself being integrated into that culture and being taught that culture and you find yourself being part of that practice and that community and these are ways in which your parents try to tell you hey look you are not just a typical american this is how they tell you that look look at the people around you look at your friends look at your cousins and they may not even be your real cousins but look at your cousins look at your aunties your uncles these people are nigerians and we're nigerians no matter where we go these people are Ghanaians, or we're Ghanaians, no matter where we go we're african we're jamaican wherever we go this is who we are and this is how we collectively stay strong in our culture so these hometown associations are very very crucial um, not just for the navigation, not just for sustaining culture, but also for sending messages. But people keep them. For people keep keeping people. I should say I'm getting tongue twisted. For keeping people connected and 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 kept abreast of all the affairs that are going on. When whether it's politically inclined, whether it's religiously inclined, whether it's just even on a personal level, these hometown associations serve as a very very powerful tool to be able to help um, gather and, and, and convene a large group of transnational immigrants. So it's an important resource. So for me and why this is important, other than what I've already mentioned, from a health standpoint, I have to speak on that because that's my area of expertise. A lot of the research that I do on transnationalism focuses on what is the proper vehicle for promoting health? What's the proper vehicle for um, being able to share health messages and be able to encourage and educate people from these respective communities about healthy behaviors and how to engage in it, but how to sustain it in a way that's culturally respective and tailored um, to them and where they're from? and how they sustain their culture. So the most important outlet that I've deduced based off my research is that hometown associations serve as a primary vehicle to promote health, to be able to engage people in healthy behavior because this, these are the spaces where the majority of members from these communities congregate. These are where they meet in order to share information and guide and, and, and fellowship and grow and families come together and meet. And, and so this is that community similar to what happens in other cultures, specifically the African-American community. We realize that a good space as researchers to conduct research, especially when it comes to health, are through faith-based, not faith-based, faith-based institutions going through the churches. Right, is a very, very strong vehicle for promoting health behaviors, especially in the black community. It's proving through research over and over again that it's a very, very strong tool. It doesn't matter whether they're in the North, whether they're in the South, whether they're overseas. For African Americans, faith-based institutions is one of the heaviest ways in order to engage in community-based research you get leadership because the church is a central figure in the black community. The mosque is a central figure in the black community. You're able to engage leaders who have the ear 
of the population, such as the pastors and and the bishops and deacons, you're able to engage them, and they steer the 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 com the community. They steer the the congregation in the right direction. And there's a similar belief because, as I mentioned, some of these hometown associations serve not just as as a as a association for festivities and festivals, but some of these places are also churches and and faith based institutions and mosques. Um, my mother belongs to a mosque in Chicago, and it's it's all Nigerian, the Nigerian Islamic Association, and they are very very involved and very active in their uh, for their communities, not just here but also overseas. Uh, and they do a lot of things um, to be able to make sure that they are engaged in practices that are similar to Nigeria. But one of the most important things that I mentioned is that they don't really do a lot of health stuff because their primary focus has always been on just helping that brother, sister, family that's arriving to the U.S., just helping people navigate, understanding the American system, understanding how to go about doing one thing or the other, understanding how to put two and two together understanding the politics of the U.S., understanding what these racism and stereotypes that other black people are talking about, what does that mean to us, does it involve us or not. So being able to really understand how to properly negotiate your acculturating process, that always seems to be number one. Number two should be that, but ultimately number one should be health, but that's not a priority right now. So what my goal is I want to try and be able to engage them to make sure that health promotion, health behaviors can become a primary topic of conversation and a topic for promotion in these spaces because the longer, the research shows that the longer immigrants stay in the United States, the more susceptible they are to a lot of these chronic diseases. And I've mentioned this in past episodes, at least earlier episodes before I got on my interview run. Um, a lot of these situations you know, there aren't interventions that are culturally tailored to be able to take into account these respective cultural practices that are sustained through transnational ties. So the only way that you can try to your best to try to improve healthy behaviors is by using spaces that transnational people utilize or use to make sure that they're sustaining their activities and their connections. So why not go to a space where you can teach them how to be able to improve their health while still being connected to their transnational homes or to the native homelands, right? So being able to try to get them to still do culturally respective things instead of no one is telling them to change their diet. No one is telling them to stop eating Eba and Efo. No one is telling them to change, you know, eating jollof rice, but finding ways to, to be more educated about alternative methods. So being able to keep the, the same indigenous practices but in a way that is healthier. And hometown associations, through the leadership of these associations, there's a certain level of trust that exists in there. And being able to use that as a primary space to share information, to engage in interventions, maybe doing something like, one of the things that I plan to do, I should say, is to have some type of dance intervention, right? And I wanna be able to use dancing as a way to improve physical activity in, the African immigrant community, not just for young people, because we already know these dances, but also for the older people, for the aging population, because they're the ones that are at risk right now, because they've been here for a long time. And just because of the aging process, they're very susceptible to chronic diseases. And how are we going to find ways in order to improve health behaviors? How are we supposed to get them to be able to believe and subscribe to 
what's present here in the United States when they don't see themselves as American. They see themselves as something hyphen American, Jamaican American, Ghanaian American, but they're not just solely American, so they're not going to truly subscribe to those recommendations. You have to have something that's respective to the African hyphen American that they are. I mean, not the African American, I'm sorry, but the Nigerian hyphen American that they are. And technically, they will still call themselves African American, but in this regard, it's more specified. Uh, so, so many things to consider uh, when it comes to these hometown associations, but I do truly believe that it has the potential to make a difference. And I look forward to trying to use that space to impact not just first generation, but second generation and future generations as well. So um, in summary, I also just want to add that as far as like when who uses these hometown associations, most of the time you'll notice that a lot of them are the um, the underserved, minoritized immigrant population. So a lot of our Hispanic, Latinx immigrants. We also know that a lot of our black immigrants, specifically our African immigrants, will utilize these hometown associations or create these alliances. It's not to say that these things don't exist in other spaces, and but they they become more available in areas where the majority of immigrants find themselves. And in most cases, I'm not going to assume, and I'm not going to go into any statistics, simply because there aren't many statistics out there. There's only a certain amount of research that's done on hometown associations because this concept of transnationalism is new. Hometown associations aren't necessarily as new as trans or as new as transnationals because they've always existed because immigrants have been here and are the foundation of America. So these hometown associations have been present for a long time, but the transnational activities and identity is the distinguishing factor. But a lot of these immigrants and hometown associations and tra- I should say transnationals are present in urban areas, right? Because a lot of the immigrants find themselves in living in cities, especially for our black immigrants. You're going to go to spaces where people who look like you reside. A lot of African-Americans live in urban areas, right? The majority of them, unless you're in the South and that may be something tied to your particular history if you're an African-American. But if you're not an African-American or native African-American that that was born in the U.S. and have ties to your history of slavery and you're coming into the U.S. as a black person, you're going to move into a city initially because that's where the ports are, that's where airports are, and that's where a lot of people end up settling or resettling. So a lot of these hometown associations also exist in cities, at least um, larger cities, and then they start to then spread out into maybe smaller cities and smaller towns. So Chicago, New York, California, you know, and these things. And another thing I should mention, especially for like young professionals, you'll find that these hometown associations also exist in second generation. A lot of African professional, young professional organizations exist as well. And these may be spearheaded by second generation or even 1.5ers like myself. So the hometown association concept is evolving um, and growing past just the first generational needs, but also now students, professionals who may be the offsprings of these first generation immigrants are also now creating organizations of their own in order to not just sustain their own you know, transnational identities, but also finding a way to 
to creating a space where you can balance being American, but also being African and having these African ties. And, and I've grown up seeing these organizations from college and now, you know, as a professional, I've seen them evolve and, and the needs and the demands and the agenda also shifts as well. So that's a nice little synopsis of the hometown associations. And I'm, and I'm going to transition after this to a person who was an evolving transnational, um, Nipsey Hussle. And I want to talk a little bit about his life and his death and what that means, not just for African-Americans or people in the hood, but also for Africans and what that stood from a transnational standpoint. So we'll take this break. So on this segment of the show, I'll take an opportunity to just reflect on the recent events that happened of uh, the shooting of Nipsey Hussle on Sunday, March 31st of 2019, and how shocking that was, not just for me, as I thought it was initially, but for the entire nation, um, the, the, the black community and the Eritrean community, um, to my knowledge, when I found out, it was it was a, you know, the internet now is so fast with updates. And I mean, I, I was getting ready to go up. Um, I was talking with my wife about something. I was, getting, I was in the basement, getting my life together, and getting ready to go upstairs, and I go on baller alert. And I see that he's been shot. And I'm like, what? Like, he's been shot? Oh, man. What is going on, right? I mean, gun violence already in itself just just an atrocity. And so many nefarious things that are going on already in this world. And it's just like, okay, man, this guy's been shot. Like, are you serious? Um, and then to find out like 50 minutes later that he passed away. I mean, they already said it. Like I saw in the comments, somebody in particular had mentioned, I saw the video and he's pretty much dead. And I just, you know, it was just like, nah, I'm not believing that first stage denial. Um, but after finding out the news, I was, I'm, I was shook. I mean, what, what this man stood for is beyond words. Um, it's always, it's always, it's always painful. I mean, when, when you lose someone from the community, but I think it, it hurt even more when you lose someone that brilliant, that was able to not just be brilliant, but recognize what his brilliance did for himself and for others. And to be able to share that gift with the world through the art of music, but through the art of just words. I mean, this man, if you listen to his music, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I was a fan of his, like I can when I talk about Drake and I can say I've been there since the beginning with Drake, but I can't say I've been there since the beginning with, with, um, with Nipsey. Because, I mean, I was introduced to Nipsey probably about four or five years ago when he dropped Crenshaw and Slauson, which is one of my favorite tracks. Um, and that's what really put me on to him. A good brother of mine put me on to him. And I was just like, man, like, I've never never heard this, but this is deep. Like, he's speaking on ownership. He's speaking on owning your own label, not being a middleman, you know. And his message was pretty dope. And I was just down. I was sold from then, um, you know, because sometimes... We, we see a lot of rappers who glorify the wrong things. 
at least in my opinion, the wrong things. We glorify the objectifying of women, depending on what type of word you want to use. We uh, see a lot of them glorifying drugs, glorifying violence, glorifying all these things. And he wasn't necessarily doing that. He was more so acknowledging that these things exist, but encouraging people from the hood, from these low, underserved socioeconomic communities to take ownership to be able to buy back the hood, to be able to do things that are good. That you don't have to necessarily be, you know, a gangbanger. You don't have to necessarily pretend to be something that you're not if you're not from those spaces. If you didn't have to go through those hard times, but you happen to be black, then you need to take ownership of that. You need to be able to give back to your community, use what you have, use your resources, and continue to build up. Don't let these people play you. Don't let the the, 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 the the majority, don't let them play you. Don't let these white people do you dirty, right, or whoever. Like, in order for the black community to grow, we have to invest in ourselves. We have to become our own suppliers of resources. And that was a powerful thing that no one since Jay-Z dropped 444 had talked about. And 444 came way after when I heard Crenshaw and Slauson. So you weren't hearing people like that dropping knowledge like that, at least not at that stage, not for young dudes to be able to understand in the way he was he was rapping it, you know. And that's the beautiful thing about rap, you know, at least for me, is that sometimes when we look at rap and rappers, we don't necessarily pay attention to the words anymore. We're all about beats. But when you look beyond the aesthetics, if you're willing to look beyond the aesthetics, which sometimes a lot of people who are not black or who don't understand rap culture don't do enough, that there's a lot of messages in the words of these rappers. And sometimes you have to look through that ugly. You have to look beyond that thuggish look, that rugged look that you may feel is intimidating or you may associate with some type of negative um, behavior or stereotype. When you look beyond that and you really listen to the words, there's power in those words. And that's what makes rap beautiful. And sometimes with someone like Nipsey Hussle, when you look at him, you're like, oh, this is just a regular ex-convict rapper dude from the West Coast on some fake Snoop Dogg looking dude. But this dude was a genius. And a lot of people who looked past that were able to read that and be able to follow his message. And he started to understand his power and his platform. And he was starting to make moves, right? Everyone knows about him buying back the block that he used to hustle on. And he speaks in his interviews, which he did a lot of interviews over his time, about what, you know, the the stereotype and, and the, not the, I would say the, the racism that he experienced by people who worked in that plaza and how that sat, that sat with him and how he said, you know, He's going to end up getting that block, and he ended up buying it. And he said, yeah, now you pay us rent, right? And that was a powerful thing, right? Being able to go back and buy from the people who stole from you, right? So that's – and speaking of that, right, so when we think about, you know, the concept of stealing, he, he was very aware of the resources that were taken from Africa, from the people that were stolen from Africa. And as I mentioned, this – podcast focuses on transnationalism so I have to speak on that to that effect this man was a budding transnational I mean this man his father was Eritrean Eritrean I'm struggling with that word so please forgive me but I I I struggle with this on a daily basis the Eritrean community so he was in part a second generation 
Eritrean and he was aware and he was just recently coming back from traveling from there from his native homeland or his father's land and he didn't go to like the main areas he went to the villages right he was going to the same spaces that mirrored his upbringing you know in Cali right in Crenshaw and he understood the history of what happened there in Africa and how in order to truly continue to build and and re revitalize the black community and elevate the black community you just not you don't only just invest in blacks in the US but you also invest in Africa you also invest back in the motherland and that's a very very powerful thing and 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 that community the um Habisha community lost a great soldier lost a great son right and it, it just kind of makes me think about that concept maybe on a lighter scale uh, of of the of the Black Panther movie and how um Michael B Jordan's character lives in 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 Cali and Compton and he goes back to Wakanda right and he's home obviously from a different standpoint he, you know Nipsey was welcomed back right he was welcomed back with open arms um, he was given some type of a sash to wear, right? And and and, and you know there are pictures of that as well. Um, so just just understanding that this guy knew things not just on a national or a local level, but he had a global mind, and he was on his way to doing something. And and so his death, I mean, it's 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 a it's a very very huge loss that a lot of us are grieving. But I think on the other side of the coin, we definitely have to continue to celebrate his life. And we also have to continue to push his agenda forward, right? If you kill the messenger, you only make the message stronger, right? I always say from, from a standpoint of those who are, who are, you know, who are geeks, right? Who play games and video games like me, the metaphor is as such. If you start to see in your path a lot of bad guys in the way, then you obviously know that you're in the, heading in the right direction because that means these people are serving as barriers and um, obstructions, obstructors to your way. And so, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's, man, my first few moments of reflection about this led me to think, man, like, as a black man, you know, is this going to be it for us? Like, can we ever, ever do something good for our people? Can we ever do something good for our community without somebody trying to kill us? Like, what does this mean for me? Like, if I want to be doing something great in my life, will I ever get to live to past 33? Will I get to live past 35 without somebody, you know, hurting me? And, and, and just to be clear, like, I honestly don't give a damn about who killed him. You know, people, I find like, I find myself just seeing that some people tend to find satisfaction in trying to have a reason as to why this happened. Like, oh, it's Dr. Sabi, he was doing this documentary and whatever conspiracy or oldest person he told to go away. That to me, I don't even care about that. The fact that it happened, the damage is already done. And it can be whatever, but we continue to find ourselves losing leaders and it's not enough of them because a lot of them don't understand what it takes to lead in this 
hard, rugged community. A lot of them are not agents of those communities who can speak to the trials and tribulations, but also be able to shift the conversation into something positive, but holding that people accountable for themselves, empowering them to be accountable for themselves. And that's what he did. And to lose someone like that is a big blow. So going back to my reflections, it was like, man, like if I'm inspiring, if young people are inspiring to do something great in their lives, what is the ultimate outcome? And it strikes fear initially in someone like my heart. Right? It strikes fear in me to say like, damn, is that is that it? Like, is somebody going to run up on me if I say the wrong things? And, and I don't think that should be the case, but I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. So to be able to just sit on it for a couple of days and then see that, man, like, you know, ultimately you cannot, you cannot avoid if you really are passionate about it, you have to be willing to die for it. And I know that's something that's not, some people may not be comfortable hearing, but it has to be worth dying for in order for things to change. In order for that change to happen, you can't be afraid to stand on your ground and to be able to live for what you mean right and be able to not just talk about it but be about it you know and they always say everyone wants to go to heaven but no one wants to die and that's ultimately what it is everybody wants the good things but no one wants to go through that and there's some lives that are going to be lost but we have to make sure that these lives are worth it that their messages remain the same and that's how they stay alive and that's how we continue to keep the the energy pushing and that's how we continue to build like I've always said before in order for the black community to actually thrive we have to become a system we have to become a well-oiled machine we have to become an infrastructure of of resources and infrastructure of power knowledge education we have to be able to know ourselves and know our cap capabilities and our capacities in order to truly thrive until then we'll always be crabs in a barrel until then you're always praying for that first crab to get out until then we'll always never know who's the real killer of our society because ultimately whether nipsey's hustle was black or white or not it didn't matter the fact that we are taking away the good ones the bad ones that we're ending our lives we're leading our own attrition is problematic it's egregious it's outrageous we need to do better we can do better we should do better we have to become more global like he envisioned us to be so his loss will not be forgotten um, he will never be forgotten because he's an artist and his music um, will always be alive but I send prayers to his family I send prayers to his his friends, those who are close to him, I send prayers to the people who he impacted um, on a positive level. Obviously, by no means was this man perfect, but that doesn't mean anything because he was human and he was ours. Um, so it's been a really, really, it's been a really, really real conversation, and I, um, I thank you all for listening. So typically, you know, we always have our clothes and music, but in this case, I really just wanted to end with. The song that I mentioned, which is uh, Crenshaw and Slauson, which is a very important, powerful song, I felt, while he explains his situation as to a true story, as to how he started to break away and, and own his own studio and how he ended up 
selling mixtapes for he released a hundred mixtapes and sold them for a thousand dollars each, knowing his value, right? Understanding, knowing your worth. I mean, there's so many things I can say about this man, but I think I went on a rampage and a rant long enough. Um, so I thank you all for listening to me vent and I hope that you all celebrate his life and appreciate it. And I also have to mention that, um, I, 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 that, that moment, um, a very powerful moment that I experienced was just earlier when I saw a video of uh, Russell Westbrook, who's also from the California um, area, a really good friend of Nipsey Hussle, had one of the best games of his career, and he dedicated it to him a couple days after his death. And, and that brought a tear to my eye because, I mean, that was spiritual. I mean, it was, it was more than just basketball. And you can show, you can see through the actions and how motivated and driven people were because of him. Um, so I thank you all for listening and i hope you all were educated on the first half of the show and i hope you all are moved as much as i am to be able to share words uh, if you have any email or any if you want to share any feedback i should say with me about what you've heard or you feel differently or you want to agree with me send me an email blacktransnational17 at gmail.com you can follow me on instagram at blacktransnational underscore and on twitter mbi transnational it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you listening to me. I didn't have any interviews, so I was selfish with you. And I hope that we can talk again. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lambert. My black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this, yours will be too. Listen to Nipsey. Long live Nipsey. Look, relate to you, I can't if you's a fake. When level four in the state with your mistakes get you Rapping because they just want a double date with you Twit picking shoties that they affiliate with you Labels used to treating rappers like a slave Starving artists just be happy with your fame Change now with such a different game All the niggas like myself is controlling everything If you pay attention see exactly what I mean The middleman. I said that in 2003 was 18, white Lincoln, chrome feet Black 40 was my pillow, every night I go to sleep Grown just treat me like they OG Holding on to every word that the tiny loaf speaks I had a vision that nobody else could see Sold my shit to D-Mac, a little less than 10 G's Brought my grocery bag of cash straight to Black Sam He matched the nigga, next day we went to Sam Ash He bought a Pro Tools and a microphone Studio was far from plush, but them lights was on Couple hundred thousand stashed at my mama's home Real estate in Atlanta, but ain't nobody know Mac 11's in the safe, hidden in the flow My bro did it like nobody that I've ever known Screens on every wall with 16 camera angles Double pane, bulletproof glass, pushing past the haters Cuban links and Rolexes, photo check from Epic This industry ain't gotta like us, but they gon' respect it Built the label up from money we were saving up. No details to the statue of limitations up. Couple niggas got flipped trying to play with us. The demonstrations speak loud, so I ain't saying much. Wasn't charismatic, I don't play as much. Cause life is real when you live it in a place like us. School pictures cracking smiles, now my face is stuck. Shell shocked to see how much they really hated us. Couldn't keep a kind heart, get your hatred up. Street smarts, nigga, get your information up. Watching belly smoking blunts, take Jamaican puffs. 
One day I'ma have a house and car like Jamaican cuz Credits roll back to stress pound breaking up Had to fight before we hustled and it made us tough Early 90s neighbors rooster used to wake us up Mama had a bucket and a shack but we ain't make a fuss Blue cutlass, no license, 380 tucks 96 Caprice, both the fast for saving up They getting packed out if you just try to fade with us Crenshaw, Slauson, true stories, oh, play the drums 